This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We want to know more about unaffiliated voters. They are the largest voting bloc in Colorado. We asked on Twitter why people are unaffiliated, and John Gerke of Wheat Ridge responded, because no one candidate or party has all the answers. Voters like him will play a critical role this election, and they've been getting lots of attention lately because they can't take part in Colorado's caucuses, and they're upset about it. So let's learn more about these voters from political strategist Jim Jonas. His Denver firm, JKJ Partners, works with many independent campaigns and causes and has for a very long time. And to Jim, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, one of the causes you're working on nationally would draw unaffiliated voters into presidential primaries. Uh, First off, break it down for us. How many voters in this state are registered unaffiliated? And put that into context, you know, versus Democrats or Republicans. Sure. Uh, Very interesting. I pulled the numbers actually this week from the Secretary of State's website. Uh, There are uh, 3,600,000 or so uh, total voters registered in Colorado. Okay, just over 3 million. All Uh, right. uh, Of that, 1.3 plus uh, million are unaffiliated. 1.3 one uh, Republican, and about 1.1 Democrat. All right. So certainly the largest voting bloc. And over time, has that been changing? Have have uh, unaffiliated voters been growing? It's uh, uh, like a rocket ship. It's uh, really remarkable, uh, the growth of independents and unaffiliated in the state. Uh, 47% since 2015 uh, of all registered voters have been registering as independent. And uh, what's really remarkable, I, I, a bit of a statistics geek that I am, I, I pulled this that tried to break it down on age group. Okay. Of those 37% of registered voters who are independent in Colorado, uh, 18 to 40-year-olds – it's represent 50% of that independent group. Okay, I'm a little lost there. It's a few too many numbers. So say that again. So uh, of unaffiliated voters, yeah. uh, uh, those who are 18 to 40 year, years old represent 50% of all independents in the state. Okay. So it's a huge number. And when you compare that to Republicans, 18 to 40, they're 29% of Republican uh, registrations and 37% of Democrats. And what does that tell you then? It tells me that uh, younger voters, the millennials and other generations, 18 to 40, uh, are abandoning the, the traditional two parties and are rapidly becoming unaffiliated. Now, it's always true, I think, that, that the younger generation um, kind of bucks, uh, I don't know, the, the, some of the institutions that have come before then. But you're saying that that is even more true than with millennials than other young people in previous generations? Historic, historically uh, different from previous generations, that they are in droves uh, abandoning the parties and wanting to become unaffiliated. They are not buying into the false choice of the duopoly that that is currently presented to them, that they do not want to join uh, either of the parties and want to be unaffiliated. I suppose that they could go to a third party, you know, the Greens or the Libertarians. They could, uh, but they're not Uh uh, currently. They may uh, uh, in future, but so far they have not. All right. And is this trend um, more notable in Colorado than other states? It is, but uh, nationally, uh, uh, Pew and Gallup and others have been doing lots of research on this that uh, currently uh, more than 40 percent of, of, of all Americans identify as independent. They may not be registered independent or unaffiliated, but they think of themselves as unaffiliated. And that is 
off the charts greater than any time, any other time period in, in American political history. Now, Jim, some of your language leads me to believe you're not a huge fan of the traditional parties. Is, is, is it just a disenchantment that's going on here with the parties or is there, is there something more? Could uh, well, this be reflective of this generation or, you know, the information they have access to or something like that? I, I think uh, uh, absolutely their ability to find that the, the, this younger group has had the Internet uh, all their lives. They, they've had the ability to go find information on their own. They don't need a political party to tell them how to think about an issue or how to think about a candidate. Uh, they they know that there are more choices out there than this either or red or blue uh, left or right, that there are uh, other ways of thinking about politics. Speaking of left or right or center, I suppose, where do they tend to fall on the political spectrum? Uh, well, uh, when we speak of, of uh, unaffiliated independents, yeah. th- there is no cohesive ideology that, that brings them together. It's, uh, it's, Makes uh, sense. It, 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 it's unwise to think of them as a cohesive group somewhere in the middle between right and left. Yeah. There are Tom Tancredo independents, there are Bernie Sanders independents uh, that consider themselves not affiliated with either party but don't want to join a party. Can you break that down uh, any more specifically? It's difficult to do that. Uh, There have been some national studies. There's not any in Colorado specifically that break it down. But talk about this this huge swath of the middle of of, uh, America, of American political thought and thinking of ideology. It could be as high as 60% are leaners or true independents. And Partisans will be quick to say, oh, there's this myth of, of independence, that they don't really exist. That but it's they, not really much of a swing vote. Yeah, that, but, but there's been lots of uh, current research uh, going that says they may have uh, tendencies and tend to vote Republican or tend to vote Democrat, but they are by far uh, much more of the swing vote and they tend to be able to be uh, persuaded to, to go to the other side. But given the decades that you've been working with this voting block, Jim, it seems like there's a, a bit of a dearth of information, uh, even if polling of this group. It's hard. It's difficult to do because it varies from state to state and it will vary from issue to issue. And certainly based on uh, on choices of candidates of where people will say, I'm rock rib Republican or, uh, uh, oh, oh, heck no, I, no way I can support that candidate. Uh, I, I'll be an independent. All right. But there may be some who split their tickets. Uh, it sounds like there there just needs to be more work done on, on getting to know this part of the electorate, in part because it's becoming more and more powerful. Uh, and I think that there will be, and there there is. And there certainly are reform efforts across Colorado and, and will be on the ballot this fall and and across the country of of trying to redefine what elections are about, that Currently, the the parties want us to believe that elections are about political parties. In a representative democracy, voting should be about voters, not about political parties. And as we change minds about that and understanding of what politics should be about, I think you're going to see more research about who these independents are. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are getting a better sense for who unaffiliated voters are in Colorado. They are the largest voting bloc in the state, and they are growing by all means. Uh, Just to put a finer point on language, difference between the word unaffiliated and independent? No, there's not. Unaffiliated is how you you register uh, if you want to uh, be a registered voter in Colorado. Independent is a catch-all for for those uh, unaffiliated. How do you think this might affect campaigning? campaigns in general? 
It uh, will depend on cycle to cycle and issue to issue, of course, but the parties are going to have to spend an inordinate amount of time talking to those independents and understanding what motivates those independents. And to your point, they're across the spectrum. So it's difficult to say, hey, uh, th- this issue, this this uh, particular message is going to work with the independence. There's not the independence. There are a lot of different uh, uh, variables within them. Uh, before we go, I just want to note, it's it's not that all unaffiliated voters are millennials. There's certainly no. growth on that end. But w- might you share a few words about older unaffiliated voters? There are a lot of them. And I'm one of them, uh, a, a former Republican that, that I uh, uh, felt like the party has left me and uh, feel like there can be uh, a more representative uh, democracy when more people participate and we don't kick people out for not joining one of these. Uh, more and more Americans uh, see a dysfunctional government and understand that that dysfunctional government is run by two dysfunctional parties. And they are seeing clearly we have to do something about this partisan politics if we're going to get our government back on track. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Jim Jonas, political consultant. His Denver firm, JKJ Partners, works with independent causes and campaigns. Keep the conversation going. If you're unaffiliated, why? Comment at the bottom of this article at cprnews.org or email us, news at cpr.org. That's why I love her. Now on to where the state of Colorado itself falls on the political spectrum. In recent presidential elections, Colorado has been the battleground state, as purple as it gets, leading to lots of candidate attention. Oh, it is good to be back in Denver. Wow, that's a Colorado welcome, I gotta tell you. But with Donald Trump now the presumed GOP nominee, some political watchers say Colorado will lose its swing state status. CPR's Ben Marcus reports. Just days after Trump locked up the nomination, Laura Fakui had already made up her mind. I mean, he just doesn't seem like the type of person you want leading your country. Fakui was loading groceries into her car at a supermarket in Arvada. She's surprised by Trump's success. She says it must be that some voters like that he speaks his mind. But to her, that's a turnoff. Maybe you don't want a president that always speaks their mind because they can offend other countries and make them angry at us. Fakui says she leans Democratic anyway, so maybe Trump was never going to convince her. He should probably be more worried about voters like Bonnie Lewis, enjoying a smoke break in her car. She describes herself as an independent, yet she's not considering Trump at all. No, I mean, it's just, it's, it's out of control. He's out of control. She says her problem isn't with Trump's policy positions, it's that he's, her word, nuts. Yes, he is. Absolutely out of his mind. <laughs> Women voters like these are a big reason that Colorado will be a tough win for Trump. Trump is going to face a real gender gap, bigger than we've seen before in the past. That's William Fry, a demographer with the Brookings Institution. He says Colorado has a high share of active female voters, and they're critical to success in the state. And Fry says that's just the start of the demographic challenge. One in eight voters here are Hispanic, and Trump has called Mexicans rapists and criminals. Trump does well with working-class whites, but Colorado is one of the most highly educated states in the nation. 
the right type of Republican candidate could probably be competitive in Colorado. I don't think Trump is the right kind of Republican candidate for the state. Fry says Trump would be wise to focus resources elsewhere. The influential Cook political report, for instance, moved Colorado from toss-up into the Democrats' column after Trump all but locked down the nomination. But Ryan Call says not so fast. He's the former chair of the state Republican Party. He says nothing is certain in this election. I am not going to get into the business of predicting a Donald Trump loss. He's certainly surprised me in how well he's done in the Republican nominating contest. Call says it's a long time until November, and Trump could still mend fences with the many voters he's offended and broaden his appeal in Colorado. But I will tell you, the, 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 it is going to be a steep climb uh, to overcome the narrative that's already out there and the perception that voters already have about Donald Trump. In fact, Call himself wouldn't commit to voting for Trump now, but said he could be convinced. Trump's campaign says they'll fight hard for Colorado, and Clinton's people say the same thing. Steve Welchert, a longtime Democratic strategist, says there's a reason for that. I think I don't see a roadmap to the White House without going through Colorado for either party. It's just not possible. Welchert agrees that Colorado's demographics make it tough for Trump to win here. He thinks any other Democrat would crush him by historic margins. But because it's Hillary, um, you know, and there's, there's some Clinton fatigue, obviously, like there was Bush fatigue. Uh, she's got her own baggage to carry around. And so that, that makes the race closer than maybe mathematically it should be. And Welchert points out that Clinton lost Colorado convincingly to Bernie Sanders in the caucus. Welchert expects plenty of visits and campaign ads before the general election. So whether or not Colorado is truly a swing state this time around, both candidates will probably treat it like it is. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Coming up, a novel way to clean up dirty rivers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When crews clean up the South Platte River in Denver, they remove a lot of stuff. Pounds and pounds of plastic bottles and discarded clothing. And it's not necessarily because people dump stuff directly in the river, says John Novick of Denver's Department of Environmental Health. Anything that's on the streets, in the parks, basically anything that's on the ground will wash into the storm sewers and then it washes directly out into the river. And so there was a competition recently to design a machine that would collect trash in the river and make it easier to remove. It was sponsored by a nonprofit called the Greenway Foundation, and five teams of students from Metro State took part. The winner was a contraption called the Nautilist, designed by seniors Mara Maxwell and TJ DiTallo. They spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. Mara, what does the Nautilus look like, and how does it collect trash? Uh, So the Nautilus is a shell-based shape. Um, It collects trash by creating a natural eddy in the water. Um, So if you imagine a Nautilus shape, the water flows through, and in that spiral shape is where the trash collects. Does it have any moving parts, or or is it really just the eddy that creates this this collection place? It's all the eddy. So um, it has no moving parts except for when it gets moved out of the water. So it's a very passive collection unit. Is your design made out of plastic? It is. It's currently in the prototype form, ABS plastic and then steel mesh. That would not be the final model for production. Any materials we would use for the actual working model would be all chemically inert. They wouldn't pollute the waterway any further. Or degrade into those small particles to create a different, equally large problem. (laughs) 
We'll have a photo and video of the Nautilus in action at cprnews.org. Mara, the competition you were a part of had judges from Denver Water, uh, Urban Drainage and Flood Control District, and the Metro Wastewater Reclamation District. What happens next with your machine? Will it be put into use in in Cherry Creek or or maybe the South Platte or somewhere else? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, We don't really know where it's going yet. Um, We definitely want to implement it in the rivers, and we're going to be meeting with people to figure out how to make that a reality. TJ, did the judges give you any advice about how you could improve the, the, the machine at all? Or Actually, just in the prototype testing, when we actually competed, we actually had some happy accidents that, that actually give us ideas for ways to improve it. One of the problems we had with our shape was figuring out how we are going to collect trash that would kind of go to the offside of our design. And if you imagine the spiral, so the side opposite of the collection side. In our prototype, we actually had somewhat of a flap that was open unintentionally, but that actually ended up acting like a scoop, collecting the trash into that side as well. So just an example of how prototyping can can result in uh, even better designs. And Mara, could you possibly scale up uh, your device to work in larger rivers, let's say something as big as the Mississippi if you wanted to? Let's just you know go large. Um, you definitely could. Obviously, this was meant for smaller scale rivers and meant to not really impede the local river traffic. So you've got kayakers and that recreation. So it's definitely meant to be on the sides and not in the middle of a river. Our idea was was kind of like the same way you have trash cans along the path of a, um, in a park. They're designed to be there, a place for you to collect trash, but not be obtrusive. So the same idea with this. Essentially, these are a series of trash cans along the way of the river. Your design then was not simply utilitarian, but uh, you you seem to have made a conscious effort to design something that would be also visually appealing. Yeah, absolutely. It's meant to be aesthetically pleasing. And as well as on the design, it's meant to incorporate local artwork. So um, different community partners could install periodically different artworks just to draw attention to it, but also be aesthetically pleasing. You would actually incorporate art. So an example of the art that could be installed is maybe an elementary school creating a bunch of birds, um, maybe interacting with trash. The visual of those birds would be a great reminder of how the trash that we do leave on the ground or ends up in our river really does affect the environment. Give me an idea of what the actual size of this would be if it was used in, in let's say, Cherry Creek or, or the South Platte River. Well, the size of it is somewhat scalable. So if it's, a, if it's a narrow part of the river, it can be scaled down or a larger width, it can be scaled up. But our prototype size was about six feet wide by about three feet tall. But it could go as far, you know, as big as beyond 10 feet or, you know, 12 feet long, depending on the, the requirements of that section of river. And Mara, are there any patents with this that you've thought about maybe doing something like that? Uh, We definitely have looked into the patents. We haven't dug in really deep on what actually exists and if we can patent the device. So how did you actually test the Nautilus? Did you put it into uh, Cherry Creek or, or the South Platte River? Well, in the testing, they dumped a whole bucket of trash. So when we were testing due to weather Um, we actually test indoors in a lazy river. So they dumped a bucket of trash and it it collected everything out of the bucket, which is great. On a river, obviously, it would be strategically placed to collect trash where it builds up on the sides. So we don't really know exactly how much in real world scenario where you're not literally dumping a bag of trash in. What got you interested in doing this type of design? Do you now walk down the street and see a, a bottle and pick it up because of this project? 
Well, I'm actually more conscious now of where my trash ends up, of course. You know, I don't think most people realize that a lot of the trash they throw on the streets often ends up in the waterway, which then ends up in larger bodies of water and sometimes ultimately the ocean. Our primary goal is to collect the trash at the earliest possible source before it gets into those larger waterways because that's when it becomes more difficult to collect. And so do you then just – someone would go pick up the trash and take it to a landfill or – I mean we still have that problem that there is trash in the river and you're picking it up. Where does it go? We do. Uh, that would be a partnership you know, with whoever's going to collect the trash, the city. Um, maybe it's an active sorting process. So when volunteers come and empty those, it could be a learning experience. So a lot of children now actually – um, clean up the riverways. They do the volunteer work so they could actually make that a learning lesson to sort the trash out of the bins. Are there now other environmental design challenges you want to take on? This is really our first experience with uh, environmental design challenge. So we really hadn't considered Mandias beyond this. This was really an eye-opening experience to some degree. You know, as industrial designers, we we design everything. It could be anything from a thumbtack to an airplane. And ultimately, those things end up as trash. So working on this project as a whole, I think, was also a nice reminder to design environmentally responsible designs. Most things that you purchase end up as trash within less than a month of you purchasing them. Thanks to the both of you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, indeed. Thanks for having us. Mara Maxwell and T.J. Detallo are seniors at MSU Denver. They spoke with Nathan Heffel. While the city has no immediate plans to use their invention, spokesman John Novick says the competition did raise awareness of river pollution. The hope is that ultimately it'll kind of lead to a call for action within the community that um, this is not um, a problem that the city can solve all by itself and that we really need to have engaged citizens helping out, acting as watchdogs. Maxwell and Detallo's machine again is called the Nautilus. You can see a photo and video of it at cprnews.org. And we have a Twitter question from Timothy Coonan, who asks, what is done to make sure we aren't trapping fish or other wildlife in this? Well, the inventors respond this way. Since it's not using any kind of net, there's nothing keeping wildlife like fish in. They would be free to enter and exit without anything more difficult than swimming upstream. The eddy keeps trash in the center, but it's not trapping anything per se. Still ahead, a photo exhibit blurs the line between art and voyeurism. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Residents of a New York high-rise didn't know they'd become works of art. They were neighbors of photographer Arnie Svensson at the time he took their pictures. He didn't seek their permission. Some sued him and lost. Now these images are on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver. Fine arts critic Ray Rinaldi wrote about the show for the Denver Post. He says he found the photos, quote, deeply offensive. MCA curator Nora Abrams says the artist's intention was not to exploit. We're going to dive into this and the issues it raises. Welcome to you both. Uh, Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much for having us. Ray, visitors to the museum can read this backstory before they enter the gallery. Uh, Take me to the moment when you saw Svensson's images for the first time. What went through your head? Uh, Well, it's interesting. Uh, They're beautiful images. Uh, You know, you can't help but be seduced by them. They're they're romantic and they're soft and they're really, really intimate. You know, by every definition I have of good art, you know, this art qualifies. Um, It's a complicated exhibit. Uh, 
you suddenly start realizing, though, as you uh, as you walk through it, that you know these are probably overly intimate moments that Arnie Svensson is catching. Um, it's a complicated exhibit, and there's a lot of uh, layers to look at it. But but one thing is really not complex about it, okay. and that's the way uh, Svensson, Svensson got his material. Yeah, to give us uh, some of the backstory of how he captured these images. Absolutely. So um, Arnie actually inherited a telephoto lens from a birder friend that um, had passed away, and that was in about 2011. And he started to just kind of play around with it. He's not actually formally trained as a photographer, so he had never mm-hmm. worked with that kind of a camera before. And um, just kind of was really fascinated by what he could capture, which was primarily the light and uh, kind of water and dirt on these windows of a building across the street from his studio in Tribeca in New York City. And uh, so he was kind of exploring what the camera could do, really, and started to um, – the the building across the street was – a. a kind of glass and steel structure that had these very pronounced window frames. And they kind of created this naturally geometric kind of frame for the windows, which often had curtains or shades. Uh, And so they just kind of lent themselves to these geometric compositions. Uh, And then slowly, kind of as he began taking more of these photos, he would see a hand or he would see a a body kind of walk by or move by and it would affect the the drapery or something. And so he became really excited by these kind of everyday moments that he was capturing. He It's a residential building. Sure. Yeah. It's a condo building. um, And it was... I think it's really important to foreground that he he really was fascinated by um, kind of subtle, uh, not salacious <laughs> or sexy or even dramatic moments. It's these very quiet moments of people going about their everyday lives that he was really kind of – I would say, intrigued by. Yeah. yeah. You, you've or, had a lot of conversations, let me say, with him. And in fact, you yes. led a, a talk with him when he was in Denver. Go ahead. We can say well, right. I mean, intrigued or obsessed. And and what did his obsession lead to? And that's where I have problems with this I, I, exhibit. Like mm-hmm. for a year and a half, he he put a telephoto lens through his neighbor's windows and took photos of them doing very intimate things, like grooming themselves, like arguing with their spouses, like sleeping, like uh, he took pictures of their children, of them disciplining their children. He took pictures of, you know, pre-adolescent girls with their shirts off. Now, I'm not suggesting... He actually, any- that, I, I just want to interrupt for, for one second and just state that Arnie's um, intention in capturing all of these was to really honor the, um, the kind of intimate and beautiful and poignant moments that he observed. And I think to paint a picture of him as this kind of peeping Tom is an inaccurate assessment of what the project was about. Um, Ryan, in fact, you introduced this by saying this was a debate between art and voyeurism and Or it's become that. It's become that. Well, and I think there's actually a very long tradition of voyeuristic photography that dates back to the 19th century and the invention of the moving or the mobile camera. So I don't think that um, what Arnie was doing represents a kind of um, really um, salacious or or exploitative project. You mentioned, Ray, that uh, there are young people captured in some of these images. And I actually think it was the parents of a four-year-old 
in one of the photographs or perhaps several of them that were the first to file a lawsuit. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't think that that Arnie Svensson was was doing anything sort of perverted or or had bad intentions. But this is not a victimless crime. And, and like, yet you can't see their faces. You Isn't can't that see their faces. Like, Actually, you that's cannot, you cannot identify. You know, any I, I challenge person. anyone to go to the MCA and see if they can't identify the faces of at least a few people in that exhibit, including the the young girl in question. It is very easy to identify her. Plus, you know, I don't know. Like, I think you. Look, this isn't a victimless crime. Like, everyone in Lower Manhattan knows where that building is. Everyone knows who lives there. Everyone knows sort of the clothes they wear and the jewelry they, ha- jewelry ha- they have and the floor they live on. You can put two and two together. Their privacy was violated. That there is some contextual understanding to who these people are. If you're from that area or you know the neighborhood, what would you say to that, Nora? I, I would say that the individuals who were captured are more archetypes or characters rather than Mr. Jones living on floor three. And I think that that's part of the allure and strength of the series as a whole is that they are not, I'm not looking at a portrait of you, Ryan. I'm looking at a man who is sleeping on a couch. And therefore, I can imagine so many different stories around why he's doing or what he might be dreaming about or why he's tired and needs a nap in the middle of the day. I want you to put yourself on that couch and imagine that you were the one sleeping. And his photograph is now up at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver and other museums across the country because others have have, uh, jumped on this. What would you what would you sure, think? Sure, I think that they are beautiful moments that you oh, know the, the you photo- wouldn't be a bit creeped out. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And you know, listen, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew grew up, born and raised in an apartment building where you could always see in and you could always see out. And frankly, I was actually in New York last week and I walked by the building. Um I kind of ended up there by accident. Um and I looked up and I saw the building and I saw people through their blinds, through their drapes, just kind of going about their everyday lives. And I saw it in many buildings in in Manhattan. And I see it in Denver as well. I think, you know, Ray said something about it's not a victimless crime. You know, I think you also have to – the individuals who had their drapes open, who had their their blinds pulled – um, it is it is totally visible from the street. I've been there. I looked up. I saw everything. Um, and I think that there has to be some recognition that um, that you live in an open space and you live in a world where people can often see you even if you aren't looking out and seeing them. And even if you don't want that to happen, it's certainly our reality. You both have now used the term crime. But I want to point out that no crime has been committed here, according to the court that adjudicated this and said that this was about protecting the First Amendment, allowing these photographs. Um, sure. And, to, I, and yeah. the court case, um, Arnie was sued by a family. Um, the statute, the New York State statute under, under which he was sued, um, was regarding the use of an image for trade purposes. And the you know, the the court um, sided with Arnie. And when it was appealed to the New York State Supreme Court, the earlier decision was upheld. Um, I should say that the family that had sued him, it was a, a photo of their, their little girl um, kind of being tossed in the air. And now they are trying to pass through or push through legislation in the New York State legislature that would require that any image that is published, that is shared or made public, even if it's of a street scene or a restaurant scene or what have you, um, if there are other people in that photograph, that everyone consent to the photograph, which would put 
immense, enormous restrictions on the production of any image, whether it's for fine art or it's something that you take with your cell phone. And let me say that that, uh, Svensson's reaction to the original ruling was that this is a great victory for the rights of all artists. Ray, what do you think of that? Because you you also come at this as as a journalist and you know, when you take a photo of someone in in the public sphere, you don't have to necessarily have their permission. So let me see if I can knock you off a high horse a little bit here. Haven't you engaged in this as a, as a newspaper reporter? Um, yes, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm a guilty party here. <laughs> um, but, but Arnie Svensson's breach isn't legal, right? It's civil. And this idea that, like, artists don't have to obey or go along with sort of the basic rules of civility sounds like something made up by artists. Hmm. Or, or maybe they're dealers. So you're saying that if it's not violating the letter of the law, it's violating something kind of deep within us. Absolutely. And 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 Nora talks about this as sort of this objective way. But if you're one of those people who are in the building, you are uh, a victim of this. You you know you're traumatized. And in fact, here's the deal: like we see like 12 photos by Arnie Svensson or 20 at the MCA. We know he took thousands, right? We know the guy took thousands of photos. So you know what's on his hard drive? You know what what that's kind of creepy to me. And actually, in interviews, that is what the people who live in that building say: like, great, okay, so maybe I'm protected here, but but what does he have of me? So you know, close your blinds. You live in New York City. What do you say? I say that. There is a reasonable expectation of privacy and that if we are all going to get along, we have to respect that. Now, you know, should should we not respect it in the name of art? Well, you know, that doesn't seem to me to be a, a like a, a realistic point of view. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about this exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver called The Neighbors. And it's a series of photographs of uh, individuals in their home in New York City uh, taken by a photographer across the street without their permission. And uh, this is uh, supposed to raise all kinds of conversations about what art is. But what would you say, Nora, to people who think you're just complicit in people's violation of privacy here? I I think that the, uh, the series of photographs to me are elegantly composed, enigmatic, arresting images. And I am very proud to display them in our museum. Does he make money from these? Not in our museum. I mean, we're yeah. a nonprofit. They're, we don't they're sell for anything. sale. And they're for sale for, you know, a <clears throat> lot of his, money. Through his dealer, they are mm. certainly for sale. That and, and let's just say that having a museum show in Denver uh, raises his credibility level and, and undoubtedly raises the price level that he can charge for these photos. Right. And I, I will even say, because I can see the emails coming into my inbox now, you know, Ryan Warner and Colorado Matters are complicit even in, in discussing <laughs> the issue. But I, I don't think that there is um, – anything i don't think it's bad or good to be complicit this is issues of privacy issues of who has access to information about us are of the most pressing concerns that we face today living in the 21st century where we have google and amazon who know more about my children than than some of my close friends because they know what my preferences are to have an exhibition yeah, do i that, hear, do i hear you saying uh-huh. that if you're worried about 
uh, the back of you being caught in a photograph. You're not worrying about the right things in terms of the violation I'm of not, your privacy? I'm not saying that one thing is right or wrong. I'm just saying that we live in a world where there is so much information about us that is available to so many more people than we are aware of. And um, a, a photograph of a quiet moment of peace is so benign in comparison to what, you know, again, what something like Apple or Amazon might know about me and use it kind of to manipulate me, to market towards me. But, but we all know this. And I don't think we need Arnie Svensson in invading people's privacy to tell us this. I mean, Edward Snowden told us this. We don't need Arnie Svensson. And this idea that like, Art should do that. Uh, to me, reeks of some sort of like cultural fundamentalism, what? where we're, no, just like religious fundamentalism, like where you know because what I do as an artist is so pressing and so important that I get to disobey the rules of of civil society, mm. you know, in the name of art. There are a lot of other ways to. Uh, do that. There are a lot of other ways to construct photographs that do that. There are a lot of artists working in privacy, but and they don't I, invade people's privacy to make their point. I, I'm going gonna, gonna to wrangle this conversation back. <laughs> there are two points that I'm really curious to ask about. I mean, one is, Ray, when you ran your piece about this, didn't you run the photographs in the post? Yeah, we ran. Uh, I mean, that's uh, an some interesting of the photographs. Decision. If I'd had more, I would have run more. You know, I look. They're out there. This this deed has been done. Uh, these now these things move from being a privacy issue into something more important. You know, I I encourage people to go to the MCA. I don't want them to not go see that show. I mean, it's a, a credible art show by a great curator, and people should go see it. I would just yeah, briefly ahead. like to respond go to ahead, the. Uh, Ray, I, this was something that in your article you you really pressed, especially at the end where you said, you know, shouldn't art be um, polite? And I think that um, I think many people shared your response regarding um, whether or not permission had been secured and and what the kind of repercussions of that are. But I think in my in my soul, I am so grateful for art that is not polite, for art that is questioning, that is experimental, that is pushing boundaries, that is making us aware of where boundaries lie. I think the thing about this exhibition is that where you draw the line is so different from where Ryan draws the line and where I draw the line, and that it can generate a conversation that explores all of our kind of beliefs and um ideas around that is so gratifying. I'll say that uh, where I draw the line is irrelevant in this conversation. <laughs> I, I hope that's clear. Uh, just briefly, uh, Ray, you wrote this piece and you got some rather thoughtful f feedback. I, I wonder if your own perception of this has evolved a bit, just briefly. Uh, it has evolved. And I've gone back to the exhibit uh, several times. And, you know, the photos are good. Like, by all definitions, they're they're really good photos. You wrote I, some of this feedback. Is that right? Um, yeah. I have, yeah like, uh, read me something that you heard from a, a reader. Um, well, I mean, Mark Sink is a photographer in town. He's really well known. And he was a defender of, of Arnie Svensson and what he did. And he is said, worried about an artist making unidentifiable abstract images of people? Please. It's the least one should wor be worried about concerning invasion of privacy. Mm, similar to what yeah. we just heard from Norman. Other artists like uh, Laura Mincello from uh, Boulder simply saying, I know I will not go see them. If his subjects expressed outrage and feelings of violation at being secretly photographed, um, then I simply cannot support that exploitation. And, and I just want to add that, like, this idea that, you know, we should let artists break rules 
um, is another thing that gets misconstrued. We want artists to break the rules of art. We want like we want Pollock to to break the rule that you have to use a brush, right? Mm. But but we want artists to act in civil ways otherwise. And a lot of great artists out there do that. Well, it's too bad neither of you have a viewpoint on this one. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us. So that's Denver Post, Post uh, fine arts critic Ray Rinaldi and curator Nora Abrams. The exhibition The Neighbors runs through June fifth at Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art. We've made the decision not to post the photos to cprnews.org, but the MCA has a few on its site, so there's a link. And we'll be right back with an up-and-coming Jewish writer from Denver whose characters struggle with their faith. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In a short story called The Garden Hose, four characters create a garden outside a synagogue. Each is looking for a deeper connection to Judaism and to the other people. The story is partly based on author Talia Zax's childhood in Denver. The Garden Hose was recently recognized in an international competition for young writers, and it's the latest of several honors that she has received. And Talia, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Tell us about the congregation you grew up in in Denver, would you? Uh, Yes. So I grew up in a congregation called Kohelet. It's a very small congregation. We have a house instead of what you would normally think of as a synagogue. And it's a little bit uh, innovative in its structure. We never had a rabbi. We always had a council of elders. And there were a lot of children who grew up with me, um, but... As I grew older, most of them stopped coming to services. I was sort of the only one. Mm. And that was something that really stuck stuck with me as I um, moved on to this story, thinking about uh, the sort of age gap and the way that that played into my own childhood and how I could write about that. And this was a conservative synagogue. Is that right? Yes. Right. And that's a, that's a term of art, if you will, um, in Judaism. So it means that you do services, uh, some in Hebrew, some in English, and... Um, uh, do, you th- do you think it captures it right, my explanation? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, so was this notion of the tension between young and old a tension you wanted to explore in the story? Is that the big idea here? Yeah, that was one of a couple of ideas that was behind it. I think the story started when I was thinking about more so just what it meant to be Jewish in Colorado and feeling like the history of Judaism really existed elsewhere and that the culture I was trying to be a part of and the religion I was trying to be a part of didn't really have roots to uh, make a pun on the story subject (laughs) in the place where I was living. And so that tension between um, sort of coming from something where tradition is really important and the storied past is a real binding factor, but not necessarily having personal access to that. That was a big influence. Uh, it's interesting because in of... you're, you're in New York now, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. So you you moved from a place that you didn't see as terribly Jewish, Denver, to one that, that um, has a much higher concentration of Jews. Um, I did. Yeah. For, for that reason? No, I mostly wanted to live in New York to uh, for the normal reasons of wanting to be in a big city and have access to all of the arts and culture. Um But it was a shock, you know, the first time I took a bus through a Hasidic neighborhood and saw people wearing the outfits I'd only seen in books before, it uh, kind of threw my head off a little bit. Mm. I interrupted you. You were going to talk about another central theme in this short story. Yeah. So going back to your original question about the age gap, I've noticed um, just generally 
being a young Jew in America, I haven't met anybody who seems to have a real grasp on what that means. Um, I know that I don't have a real grasp on what that means. And I've witnessed a certain anxiety in a number of older Jews about how my generation is going to keep this tradition growing and keep this religion growing. And um, that tension, that sort of anxiety on their part sometimes manifests in really thoughtful and really gentle and um, educational ways. But sometimes it also forces people apart, this kind of mutual lack of knowledge about where we go from here and how we're supposed to do it. In a way, this is such a simple story you've written for people building a garden, but you explore so much with it. Um, as you've just reflected there, the tension between generations, the older congregants are sort of in awe of this young woman, Rebecca, whose idea it is to build the garden at the synagogue and the vitality she brings. Uh, you explore how society perceives people without children, because one of the characters, Solomon, is, I guess, kind of mourning the loss of the children he never had. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to say a bit more about Solomon? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there's generally a sort of striving to be a good Jew that happens in a lot of congregations. And uh, one of the things that, in a, especially in a small congregation, really ties people together is the mutual rearing of families. Um, a lot of my parents' friends are people who they met either through our synagogue or other Jewish communities, um, who they met because their children were doing the same things my brother and I were doing. And I was interested in what it meant to be someone who didn't have that connection to the community, but also because Judaism is a really small religion. Um, there are about 12 million of us in the world. There's this anxiety to reproduce physically as well as in terms of um, the sort of reproduce the traditions, reproduce the significance of it. And so someone who was really wedded to the religion but had made the choice, or I mean, in Solomon's case, it's unclear whether he really even thought about it, yeah. to uh, not physically continue this thing. Um, that's something that I thought was sort of an interesting position to be in, because on the one hand, he's very, very Jewish. But on the other hand, he's kind of consciously not chosen to propagate Judaism. And so is this a pressure you feel? I'm, I'm thinking of the calls you make to your parents, you know, have you met anyone yet? Or, you know, is there the pressure, uh, do you think? Yeah. Well, a shout out to my mom, who's probably listening. Okay. Um, she definitely <laughs> asks me if I've met a nice Jewish boy most of the time. Uh -huh. uh, but at the same time, you know, I think that at least my parents and certainly many of the parents of my Jewish friends do recognize that the world we live in is a very different world from the one of a century ago where most of our acquaintances would be Jewish and we wouldn't be moving around that much. Um, so there's a growing understanding that the religion is not probably going to continue in the form it's been in, that allowances have to be made for interfaith partnerships and children who are raised in multiple religions and Adaptation is necessary, as with all things. There's another character I want to talk about in, in just a few moments that we have left, and this is Edith. And mm -hmm. she sees this building of the garden as um, really symbolic. She's She has a distinctly Anglo-Saxon name, you write, Edith. Mm -hmm. And so she feels, I don't know, a little less than or something. Yeah. So something I've noticed is that a lot of um, my friends who are sort of married and beginning to have children are naming their children names that are less distinctly 
Jewish than a lot of other ones. And we talk a lot about acculturation. We talk a lot about assimilation. And I was interested in sort of how bearing a kind of inescapable marker of not being just Jewish, of now being Jewish American, might affect this character's understanding of herself as a Jew and what she had to do to, like, live up to being a Jew. And so... Um, I do think she feels less than, and I do feel that she has to feel, I feel that she feels that she has to compensate, and that in some way she needs to earn the legacy she's been given. Um, But instincts like that often manifest in arbitrary ways, I think, this desire to sort of prove yourself. So the kind of comical, like, focus she devotes to just buying a garden hose was meant for me to kind of explore that arbitrariness that gets imbued with a lot of meaning for someone in those circumstances. And The Garden Hose is the title of this short story. So much going on in just a few pages. Talia, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Talia Zacks grew up in Denver, and she wrote The Garden Hose, this short story that recently placed third in the Amy Levy Prize Competition, sponsored by The Jewish Journal in London. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. That's the program for today. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Public Radio.